Welcome to the Kitchen Table Podcast, where the table comes in all sizes, shapes, and styles. Join Kyle and Seth as we explore the journey of food from our field to your dinner plate. The one guarantee is that there will always be a seat for everyone at the kitchen table. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Kitchen Table Podcast. It's always uh, my pleasure to be able to uh, talk with friends and talk with family and talk with fellow ag professionals every week as we talk about real and relevant issues within the agricultural industry. And it's something that's really important um, for all of us. We got we believe in healthy food and healthy lifestyles and certainly believe in creating healthy relationships. And so, Kyle, it's great to see you. How are you doing today? Doing good. Doing good. Excited for another week. Uh, just can't wait to get to hear our guest tonight and just really excited. Wow, that was certainly a, a great segue. And uh, uh, Miss Jamila or Jam McFarland from, I believe, West Weber, Utah is also joining us tonight. And Jam, I'm gonna help you out, Seth. It's West Weber. We gotta get first things, first things straight. West Weber, Utah, our proud um, and unincorporated little piece of Utah. But yes, I'm Jam McFarland. Um, and thank you guys for having me tonight. This is fun to get to hang out. Well, it's uh, it's always my pleasure, and I'm sure Kyle's pleasure to be able to to see you and to be able to talk to you. And uh, really, because you bring such a unique perspective to the agricultural industry, and I know that you're fresh back from the American Farm Bureau Federation annual meeting in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, fresh off of the plane here in the last I don't know day or so, and certainly just a breathtaking or eye-opening experience, I guess, to be able to see fellow farmers from all over the world or all over the country, excuse me, where uh, the American Farm Bureau Federation represents about 5 million farm families all across the country. And so, Jam, I don't know, what were your takeaway experiences from that? Well, I like you said, we just got home about 48 hours ago and um, we, ha we haven't stopped running, I guess. We the things that we've been able to do for the American Farm Bureau have kind of stretched us in the ways that we've really needed. Like um, we are all in our careers now, so we don't have as much time um, to get any kind of professional development anymore. We're kind of all in. So um, that's kind of my biggest takeaway is um, our coordinators knew the areas that we each needed to grow or what goals we had in being on this committee that we've served on and they put us in those positions for a reason. Um, our coordinator gave me the opportunity to um, get in front of the groups or the, the YFNR group, I guess, of um, top competitors for the awards that they set up. And we're talking the, the elite of the ag industry that are our age. So between 18 and 35 and they, give you such hope in, in our industry. I mean, people talk about how, how maybe farming and ranching is going out of style or it's an out of, out of date career path, but it's not. If you go to these conventions and you talk with these people that are getting creative, that are getting innovative and they are making their farms and ranches work and finding ways to reduce their costs or be more efficient. Um, it's, it's just mind blowing. And it's, it's very inspiring. So um, my opportunity, I guess, at the convention was to prepare the learning sessions or networking sessions for these award winners. And that was the coolest part. I, I got to know them and hear their stories, which that's, you know, why we're all here is for people. And so I, I loved it. I was way inspired. I've made some connections for people that would help what we're doing on our farm. And then 
I hopefully gave some tips of stuff that I've learned, some things that they don't have, they can avoid making those mistakes on and hopefully help their farms and ranches too. So it was good. It was a win-win. Wow. Such uh, so many bright spots that you just brought up and, and talking about. And I mean, farmers and ranchers make up less than 2% of our national population. And it's yet it's such a dynamic and talented workforce. And in a lot of those individuals, they may never get have the opportunity to see the national stage or to see a national convention, but their solemn promise or their, their best hope is to produce safe and healthy food for all of us across the country and across the world because agriculture truly is a global, a global industry. And so that's some of the things that Kyle and I've been working with here on the Kitchen Table podcast. It's really to make food sexy and to make it be- come back and have fun and bring in awareness and put a face with the product and a face with some of those things. And so Kyle, I'd like to start tonight and uh, just in thinking back in the last week and ask you to give us one word that describes the past week for you. I'm going to use the word change. And it kind of stems off last week, we talked about new opportunities and independence and entrepreneurship. And I think that across anyway, in Nebraska, some of my friend base and ag base a lot of a lot of businesses are looking at a different vision. They're looking for a a new start, um, and it mostly middle to young age ag business or farmers. And so I just feel, and I've I've stressed that kind of all year ever since we started the podcast that there's just kind of a change in the air. There's kind of a paradigm shift. I feel that I just uh, I love this podcast because we get to talk about that type of thing every week. So that's, that's my word is just change. And I think that's sometimes what life is all about is just being able to adapt and, and learn and grow with the, the ever-changing industry. Yeah. What's your word this week? So I was going to, I'm actually going to fall kind of pretty close to right in line with you where you talk about change. I talk about opportunity and the opportunities that the industry actually represents to me and, and hopefully to a lot of other young farmers and ranchers, because I, I think out of opportunity, uh, it creates innovation. And uh, I think that that's going to be really important for the long-term success of our industry. And we had really kind of explored that in depth last week, where we were talking about how some of the global markets aren't necessarily going to change because we're, we don't have enough needle movers, so to speak, uh, to be able to change some of that marketplace. But a lot of our food delivery systems certainly can become more of a locally driven system, but it takes, but we got to have those connections with some of those farmers and we got to have those connections with individuals that are working in farmers markets or, or selling uh, fresh produce or selling fresh cut uh, livestock products. And, and so I think that that's the opportunity and where that lies because studies show that farmers are trusted right up there as much as doctors or nurses or dietitians, And that's really important. Because, I mean, who else knows more about where a product comes from than a farmer? And I think that's been referenced really well in a lot of movies throughout time. Uh, most of them are uh, comedy movies, but just talking about you can get a good look at a, at a steak if you stick, a, you stick your head up a bull's you-know-what, or would you rather take a butcher's uh, word for it? And so that concept kind of prevails at the same time. So, uh, Jam, I know you'd put a lot of thought into thinking about one word for the week for you. I'd love to hear it. Okay, well, I kind of both have picked it up a little bit, but I, I think that especially in Utah, 
it's kind of an entrepreneurial spirit. Entrepreneurial, I guess, is what I'd say. Utah is like number three in the nation for businesses and opportunity. And like you said, both of you, if we want to stay in our field, especially in 2022, we need to get creative and we need to be driven by something other than our dad and grandpa were driven by, right? So a lot of our farms are becoming more diverse as we figure it out how we're going to make this work and how we're going to be able to afford things. And I think that if anything, 2021 showed us that we can go directly to consumers and that is huge. You know, in our, our operation, that was our biggest year by far for our retail side. And we dabble in both. We do a little bit of wholesale, a little bit of retail because we can't decide which is better yet. <laughs> and we can't, we just have good relations on both sides. And anyways, but yeah, like I said, 2021 was an eye opener. It there, I mean, there was a lot of limitations because of the virus, but our consumers came to us and, and showed us that, that they love us and they want to support us and they want good, fresh food. And if they know us, they know who's bringing it to them, then that makes, makes their decision right there. That is truly the farm to fork concept and the model that Kyle and I have long tried or have not necessarily long tried. This is episode 21 of the Kitchen Table Podcast. So for 21 weeks, we have tried to put uh, bring consumers to the farm or the farm to consumers. And we can talk about that. And and I kind of want to start off tonight. And you, you did such a beautiful job laying out what Farland Family Farms does in West Weber, Utah, the tiny and unincorporated town. But I would really be curious to hear about some of your farmers markets and some of your products and some of your wholesale and some of your resale. And I know Kyle usually has a lot of really honest and sincere questions when it comes to these then also. Okay, so we are produce farmers and our our main crops are sweet corn, onions, pumpkins, and winter squash. And so these are the four things that we, I guess, kind of have our name attached to in the area. So sweet corn is our first uh, crop to harvest um, just right after the 4th of July. And every year we try to get the fourth and we have customers, you know, just knocking on our doors for, for sweet corn come for the 4th of July. But we normally come on around the 10th for harvest. And what we do on the retail side is we have multiple what we call pop-up markets around three counties in our area. So we have in Weber County, which is the county our town is, we have eight of them. And then we have three in the county north and three in the county south. So 14 total. And what we do is we started with just sweet corn. Like when Kenny, my husband, was in junior high and high school and he they needed to move the crops, I guess, he would just set up just sweet corn. And people really would come for the sweet corn. His dad made a really good name. We specialized in the quality. So it kind of became a niche, I guess, product for us. And the McFarlands were known for doing sweet corn the best. And so we started there. And then now that we've kind of, Kenny and I have made it the component that we've capitalized on, I guess, in our farm, we've, we dabble in growing the other things that people want. So they, we provide their tomatoes and their cucumbers, uh, their peppers, some melons, summer squash. So you got your, both your zucchini and your crookneck. You've got just a variety. So they're coming for sweet corn, but then you just need to provide the rest of their dinner, right? So they take care of the the protein and then we take care of everything else that'll be on their plate for, for every barbecue from July to September is kind of what our goal is. Anyways, we love it. We have people literally lining up. We, we market on, on social media because it's a free platform as people know. And I would highly recommend it. Um, and we, 
we have people lining up for opening day of sweet corn season. And like we have a countdown and everyone gets all hyped up for it. And we have the best rapport with our customers because A, we're bringing a quality product and B, we make it a community thing, I guess. It's like, we don't have a sweet corn event, which would probably be a good idea down the road, but literally the first day of sweet corn is like a celebration. (laughs) Everyone is at the stands and I just wish Sometimes I wish that these stands were at my farm because it brings the community together. And like, like this podcast kitchen table, if you can get people around the table, like that's, you show love through food and, and food brings people together. And so I think that that like, is just such a camaraderie in our community. So I love, I love the first day of sweet corn. It's a lot of farmers dread the first day of harvest, but we are celebrating it. Like we have a big breakfast for all of our employees and we make sure that it's just fun. It's just a fun kick off to harvest, I guess. What separates the quality of your sweet corn? Early on, you mentioned that the quality is a little bit better and different. And I, you know, we're awful proud of our sweet corn in Nebraska. <laughs> so I'm going to- And I'm sure it's great. That. I'm sure it's great. I really am. My my father-in-law, um, who we are, we farm with, and he's kind of transitioning of out of being the, the head captain on this ship, I guess. He has an, an impeccable eye for detail. So we're talking like a no worm guarantee and, and our corn, he just knows. And I haven't gotten there. I wish I have, I married into the family. So I'm pleading the fifth on like being able to taste it and know when it's ready, but everyone else that's lived the last 40 years of their life growing on this farm, they can, they can see it. They can taste it. They know everything about it. I grew up on canned corn. So I hate to like, even say that I'm an expert on sweet corn, but my, my, the family I married into is, and because of it, I think that they just have the upper hand. The detail that my father-in-law has taken in growing the crops is impeccable. And he's tried to, to teach Kenny and I, mostly Kenny. <laughs> Kenny is so, he has a 30-foot view on everything. And his dad has an eye for detail. So with them working together, it's just been such, in that regard, such a good place for them to be working together because they've been able to do so much good in making their, their products that they specialize in the highest quality that you can have. And I think, I think even more than that too, versus from not necessarily straight from a quality standpoint, but you sell a, uh, you sell an experience and you sell an experience for families to be able to come to a farm or come to a roadside stand, pick their own produce or pick, pick their own corn as you're, as you're saying, but then more importantly, you bring a passion and a commitment to a product and to an industry. And really regardless of where you go, in agriculture is you see farmers and ranchers that take such great care or so, you know, so much happiness in terms of being able to, to provide that crop. And I mean, I know that both Lindsay and I, we, uh, we certainly are not can- canned corn uh, individuals. We do sweet corn throughout the year. And actually our sweet corn right now across the country is probably coming from California or Florida. Uh, Florida ranks number one in terms of sweet corn production. Mm-hmm. California is number two. And then actually Washington and New York are right behind that. Pretty unique. And Debbie, when you say you have the best, that's certainly uh, other oh, no. states that and, I know they take and, great and pride too. It's not in a, it's not in a, I, like we're very humble about what we do. And I promise I don't brag about everything that we grow, but our sweet corn is really, really good. Like I, I promise I won't. Well, in the farm community, you can't get too overzealous because there's so many things out of your control. Right. So like you say that you have the best corn, but then mother nature will be like, well, here's, a plague of some new pest or here's something, you know, I, but I, I well, think Jam, we're very happy to like boast. 
we want to boast your product too, because so you should be proud of it. I think it's excellent that you're proud of it. And to be honest, we don't grow my personal family. We grow a little bit of sweet corn, but it's a lot more of a hobby and it kind of gets, it's kind of what we do at the end of the day instead of the front of the day. And, and so it, it typically isn't going to get the, the most attention. Most care. And, right. So we're, I totally understand that. And I really like the dynamic of the 30,000 foot view working with the attention to detail because any, any good business probably needs that. And that, that probably serves your customers very well for the longevity of what you guys are putting together. I've got a question on early on. You also talked about kind of that retail side versus also kind of having to be in the wholesale food as well. Do you, do you see some of the wholesale grains in the, in the farming? Do you think that will get detailed enough down to where you'll, the, the attention to detail type things will, will be to the level that your father-in-law is with sweet corn? Well, I, I don't know. Um, I think that wholesale market is so unpredictable to me. That's why I feel like I like retail a little bit better because there's, I feel I'm kind of a red personality. I like control a little bit. And so in considering the wholesale market, I think that you can come with a quality product, but as soon as it leaves the farm, then it's hard to know what kind of product you're giving your consumers, right? So in the transition from when it leaves the farm and then it's delivered and then it's put in a cooler and, you know, just the different steps, it's, it's hard to not have my hand or, you know, our employees hands and care in, in every bit of it. And that's, that's like the bonus to retail is I know exactly what my customers are getting. So when they call and they say, I got this, I'm going to say, I want to make it right. And I want to make it better, but I promise you, we picked it this morning because we did like, I, I can tell you that, but if they get it from the grocery store and they say, I got it this way, I it's hard. There's no trail, you know, like for Gap, there's a trail, like if there was any problems, but literally I don't know how long it sat in the cooler versus the fresh produce we can bring that morning from harvesting to their, their kitchen that night or, you know, so midday. So. I want to back up real quick. And you, you touched on an interesting point because you and I, and, and GM, I know we've known each other now for a couple of years and you and I have been privy to some very, very fun zoom meetings and conversations and trying to set up uh, work groups and uh, communication sessions for other young farmers. I've always kind of thought that you and I were in the same boat in terms of that we both married the farmer and you married Kenny and obviously I, I married Lindsay and in just different aspects where everything that we do is wholesale because it goes out through uh, out in the form of milk and you guys are doing retail. But I'm curious to hear about what your background was growing up. Were you open to agriculture? Were you exposed to agriculture? And then how that kind of dictates the way that you live your life now, I guess. Oh, that's funny because um, we always joke that I had showered twice before Kenny like even thought about going inside for the day. I grew up more uh, I, in the city, as you can maybe imagine. And my, I don't think that I was privy to opportunities of getting dirty or getting playing in the dirt or exploring outside. Like we lived in a, a cul-de-sac that like you knew your neighbors at really close to, or next door, literally, but you never walked out of that cul-de-sac because you didn't know who was out there. So in contrast, Kenny grew up on 20 acres and that was just one of the farms that he was allowed to explore on. 
And his mom said, as long as you guys stay outside all day, you don't have to do any housework, right? So he, <laughs> and he still doesn't. As long as he stays outside, he doesn't have to do any housework, right? How's that anyway. going on the family raising front? I don't know how well that worked well, for me in our During current... winter time, we, we have, we have a, a, a family council on it for sure. But during <laughs> the summertime, he gets a pass. <laughs> I have caught him vacuuming. Vacuuming is kind of the thing that he goes to because it's something he can <laughs> he can excel at, I guess. Anyway, so I grew up totally, totally different. Like my dad is uh, Middle Eastern. And so in just kind of just to give you a little bit of background. So because of his the way he was raised in Iran, they for dinner or for the meal of the day, you would literally go to the grocery store every single day. You had a refrigerator, but you didn't store things for multiple days. So on the way home, you picked up bread. You picked up like a tiny bit of milk because that's the amount that you'd eat and you picked up whatever food you were cooking. So my dad loves fresh. He loves it and he thrives off of it. And so at first, when we started farming, that's like was his main, my dad's main thing. So to impress my dad, Kenny would be anytime he grew something that was just harvested and my dad was at our house, he would go grab everything for him. So we'd send him home with, and my dad loves onions and, and every meal he cooks has two to four onions in it. So to get on my dad's good side, we have the food <laughs> there and, and it's fresh. And so anyway, so I grew up with fresh food all the time. And even though we live in the United States, we literally had to go to the grocery store every day after my dad picked me up from whatever. Um, we'd go and hit the, the local grocery store and it wasn't like a chain grocery store. It was the elite of the elite grocery stores, right? So we were paying a little bit more, but my dad cares about food. Like that's the experience that's the area of his expenses that he will spend more money on. And so I grew up with that. Go ahead, Kyle. Sorry. It's just interesting. I love this because culturally, uh, I don't know if my dad's ever been in a grocery store. (laughs) And so talk about that a little bit as a family dynamic growing up. That's very interesting to me. My dad kind of instilled healthy eating from a young age. So we leftovers wasn't a thing. And I I thrive off of leftovers now. It saves me like the second day of dinner, right? So, but yeah, we didn't didn't have leftovers often. Everything that we had for dinner, my dad cooked. And culturally, the men don't cook in Iran necessarily, but my dad and mom had divorced at this point. And so um, my dad learned to cook. And plus when he came to the United States and he didn't speak English, cooking or being a waiter were kind of the opportunities that he was given. And so he learned to cook when he first came to the U.S. Anyways, to jump back to the focus. So we ate healthy. Anytime I wanted a snack, it was never fishy crackers. Like I give my kids now, it was always like, go grab a cucumber or let me cut you up some apples or oranges. And, and so that's my go-to right now. Like I'm, I don't like rant and rave about my healthy lifestyle, but like, that's how I was raised. So when I want a snack, you'll see my kids even, (laughs) and it's kind of weird to people, but like when they're snacking during the summer, they're like walking around with a cucumber in their mouth or like a cob of corn or something that they grabbed off of our garden. Like, even though we have a farm, I still grow my garden for my own sanity anyways. So like, that's kind of my, my only saving grace in healthy eating is that we love fresh. Well, that's a neat example for all of us, I would say, because our kids are they would not be caught walking. Well, we have one out of the four would have a healthy thing. The other three, they're You're doing they're right. like, like living with <laughs> raccoons. They're always in the closet getting whatever they can find, except for healthy stuff. They they do have a joy of Kinder Joys. Uh, I do know that because which anytime, are very unhealthy. I found out. Well, and any any time I 
Lindsay and I sent Kyle a Tiffany a care package of a bottle of wine and Kinder Joys because we know that the kids enjoy those. Yeah, but- we get like dessert wine and then a regular bottle of wine and then like all this all this candy and all this cheese and crackers. And it's like, well, thanks, Seth. I'm going to gain another 10 pounds over the next two months. <laughs> really appreciate it. <laughs> I want to circle back to, to some things that you were talking about, Jan, because it, you really absolutely hit the nail on the head in terms of of having those healthy eating choices and healthy conversations and, and ensuring that your children are eating healthy snacks. You said fish, fishy crackers, which I assume are goldfish because. Yes. Sorry. I talked to three-year-olds 90% of my day. So I apologize. (laughs) Hey, kids, you can't live with them and you can't live without them sometimes. And they're the most trying thing I've ever probably experienced. And also, but I kind of want to kind of want to talk about as a mother and as the one that's making a lot of these these food related decisions in terms of snacks or some meal planning, what pieces, excuse me, of, of advice can you give to other mothers or other individuals that are making some of those food related decisions in a household on how to prepare or what to prepare for a healthy meal? Please know, like I'm not the standard on healthy eating. I like, I try obviously. Um, and, and it's changed a lot from when I grew up to what I do for my kids, because I call it for sanity purposes, like goldfish crackers are always in our cupboards and the pantry is frequented daily by my children. So please, please don't think that I'm like in this special place of healthy eating, but I do love to have just my, my bottom two organizers, I guess, of my fridge full of easy, quick, like hand vegetables and fruits. So like the, there's peas always there. It's so much easier, obviously in the summer, I guess. So like I said, we have produce on our farm, but I grow a garden at our home. And so like when I wanted privacy from the one neighbor that we have, I do, I put a bunch of fruit or grapevines on the fence and that's like, my kids love grapes. Right. So then, um, if they want other things other than grapes, when they're snacking throughout the day, then there's tomatoes in our garden and cucumbers and um, my dad brings me a seed from Iran. That's these little, these Persian cucumbers, you need to find them. They are like the perfect size. So kids don't waste them hardly at all. Um, Cause you know, kids take two bites and set an apple down and it, you're mm-hmm. like, there we go. There's six apples with two bites in them. And they, they, um, <laughs> and they land behind the couch sometimes. Yeah. And it's horrible. And you're like, I never said, I told myself I wouldn't be this parent and here we are. But <laughs> anyway, so I, I love um, fruits and vegetables that are the size of their hand are smaller because then I know that they can finish it. I know if that sounds good, if they can put it in their hand and not have to be in a baggie, sometimes baggy sized snacks, I guess, for fruits and vegetables just don't end up being eaten. So like, I like just easy go-to hand size snacks, if that makes sense. So like, I don't know, just, I, I always have fruits and veggies on hand because that's how I grew up and that's what I like to snack on. And then I also have, you know, everything else that's just the norm of, crackers wise for kids too, but I'm big on water. I think that it's important to, and, and Seth, you know, this well, as well as anyone that you find some, if someone finds a good water bottle, they hold on to it for life. I know Lens is pretty attached to hers. <laughs> I make sure water is always with us. My kids each have a water bottle that they like got from Santa. So it's a little bit fancier than just our plastic ones that we toss. And then they drink more water if they like it and, um, and then snacks that are just small. So if I buy apples, I try to buy smaller apples that they'll finish. So it's nothing huge. It's like the tiniest thing, but it's something everyone can do. Absolutely. That is, that's excellent advice because 
households across across America certainly are not slowing down, especially when you have both parents working out of the house a lot of times or in and out or flex schedules or swing shifts, whatever it may be. But kids going to sporting events is a really big deal in terms of in and out, in and out and maintaining maintaining that healthy, uh, trying to maintain a balance, I guess, in some cases. I see both of your heads nodding yes, because I know that we all have kids that are doing extracurricular activities. For me right now, it's gymnastics and swim. Hey, I'm a swim dad. I'm a gymnastics dad. What can I say? I absolutely love it. It's always really fun to sit down and listen to people that have a passion for an industry. And I think you said you had 14 different farmers markets in three different counties, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. And that's all in yeah. and around. How close are you to like the Salt Lake area? So our farm is 45 minutes north. And then our closest stand to Salt Lake is probably 20 minutes or we'll say 25. But um, so we have three in Davis County. This means nothing to people that aren't in Utah, but three Davis County is the the county just north of Salt Lake County. And then, like I said, our eight in our, the county that our farm's in. And then we went up north for three stands as well, just because their climate is a lot different than ours. And we start harvesting and are almost done with harvesting when they are just getting going. And so it's nice for them to have a start on it. They, you definitely can see the decline in our sales once the local stuff is on, which is great. I want them to support the farmers in their County as well, but I also have an upper hand on bringing them produce sooner. And so that's why we start there. And then, and then just try to finish up around labor day is kind of our mark last barbecue of the year, right? You well, have some Utah facts. I'd like to hear some of those uh, statistics you, that you are typically well, so full of. Man, put me on the spot today. And as soon as, uh, Jam, you can nod your head if you know these facts or not. But we absolutely want to get your uh, social media handles, website, and certainly some of those things because we want to plug your business. I think you touch on an interesting point, though, where you talk about your northernmost markets dwindle as local farmers up to the north, their products come available. And that's really important because within the agriculture industry, we support all types of agriculture. We support all niches and we support all farmers and many hands make light work or lighter work because I know how much work agriculture really is. So if I'm not mistaken, Utah is the beehive state. Is that correct? Good job, Seth. Look at yeah. you doing your research. Yeah, that, that was a pretty lucky guess and trying to figure that one out. But Utah actually has quite a bit of tart cherries and sweet cherries. And so Utah ranks number two in the country for tart cherry production. Any guesses, Jam, on what the number one state in the country is for tart cherry production? I would totally be lying. Maybe Michigan? I don't know. So Michigan is by far oh, and away. Wow. No wonder. You were like getting that twinkle in your eye. Like, guess what magical state it is? So Michigan is number one in tart cherry production. And they, and so number two is Utah. And number three is Washington. Michigan produces more than Washington and Utah combined. And so the area that we live is kind of in the heart and center of tart cherry production. So if you, if you want, ever want your pie filling for cherry pies, or you want your maraschino cherries for your cherry on top of your ice cream, there's a good chance that it comes from Michigan. So some really, really obscure Utah facts, actually. Did you know that, that Utah ranks number two in the nation for mink pelt production? Hmm. I won't lie. I didn't even know that was the thing. But if I had to guess, I would say the Northwest up in Alaska is probably the number one. <laughs> I have no idea. 
Could be Montana. I, I don't know either. So it very well could be. Uh, and the, this is just all fun stuff. And so then I knew kind of what your products were. And I know that you take some very beautiful uh, drone footage and pictures of your farm. And you folks grow a lot of onions on the farm. And so Utah grows quite a bit of onions. They actually rank seventh in the country in terms of total production of onions. <laughs> so, and, and I'm, am- I'm amazed by the diversity of it's, I'm amazed by the diversity of agriculture. In Utah. Well, it's neat to hear her father's story about onions, too. That kind of brings <laughs> it all full circle. Yeah, he's pretty proud of us growing onions. So we grow yellow, red and white onions. And right now with the market, the, the white onions are doing really, really good. And people don't know this very often, but white onions are super, super delicate of a crop to grow because if they discolor at all, if they go a little bit yellow, then you can't obviously sell them as white. So when you harvest them, when you grow them, it like the harvest for yellows and reds are mechanical. And then for white, we do a hand harvest on our farm, um, which takes a lot of employees and a lot of time. And you have to like, so they, it's just way delicate crop. I have a love hate with them because they can be so good if they're good. And then one day in the sun too long can just change your crop and, and it's not good. So that's, what's hard with, with onions. I love them because like I said earlier, it's a staple for just about every dish that we cook. And if it's not for you guys, you need to change that because you need to make Utah onion farmers higher ranked, I guess. But it sounds anyway. like Kitty might've had to grow onions to, to marry yes, you. Exactly. That was, that was part of the bargain. Like, well, I grow corn and you're like, well, now you have to grow onions or my father's not going to approve. <laughs> Well, it's kind of probably a prerequisite. <laughs> so, Jim, as we kind of start to wind down a little bit, I want to, you, you mentioned a lot that you do a, a lot of work with social media and promoting your products and I want to give you the opportunity to give a shout out or to plug your social media handle, websites or anything along those lines and tell us, you know, just about that, I guess. Okay. So we have our farm on Instagram and Facebook, and those are just at McFarland Family Farms. And then we have a website. So it's just www.McFarlandFamilyFarms.com. So farms is plural. Just remember that we have our farm, like our entire produce farm isn't connected in one big piece, like some of the farms in your states. Unfortunately, we go a half a mile west and there's another field or whatever, which makes it a little bit trickier to track down my husband, but it works for, <laughs> for the career choice that we've made. But, um, but yeah, please jump on, say hello. Um, we love new people and we love seeing what other people are doing. So I love that on Instagram, when people start following you, you can follow them back, which is such a collaborative idea, I think. And especially in the farming community, I think that's the biggest way to get to know what other people are doing. And Instagram does it really well because when you don't have very much time, you can just see what they're doing in pictures and and then if you want more information, that's when you spend the time on the post. So I'm a big fan of all of them. I'm learning more. I needed to learn more, I guess, on my website, but I, I had a really good team that I worked with to create it. And I think that, that one thing I would tell people in doing marketing for your farm or marketing in general is if it's not your strength, then find someone whose strength it is and let that go and do your strength where it is in your, in your business. But, but if it's not, then find someone that, that can help you because that's been the biggest biggest thing for us. That's great advice, Jam. And I kind of towards the end of these podcasts, I usually try to summarize a couple things that that I've learned from a guest or from Seth. And 
couple things that you touched on early on was uh, professional development that you just got back from the American Farm Bureau Conference and the value that that can bring to your farm. And then you have that ability to contribute things and tricks and tactics that you've learned to other farmers that I personally can't stress enough from getting to know both of you over the last couple of years and, and others that have been through some of the same network as well. And then just so that professional development and then that conferencing and peer group type stuff. And, and in the wintertime, you mentioned too, that sometimes you'll give your husband a little bit more of a pass in the production season out of the house and I get that. I, we were a commercial hay business, are a commercial hay business. And, you know, when the sun's shining, you make hay. And that's, that was just always what we had to do. And the winter time, we, we spend a lot of time learning from learning from people and, and hopefully contributing to that group. So thanks a lot for, for being on. And well, and I think we started off the beginning talking about how less than 2% of the national population really is comprised of farmers and ranchers. And while we've, we've all had the opportunity to meet and to converse, it really is a special group of individuals, uh, wherever you are and whoever you may be, because we all support each other, even though we may be in direct competition. And I think a lot of times when we start to look at the creativity and the innovation uh, Jam, you're just a prime example of an individual that didn't grow up on a farm, but then now you play a very, very vital role and an active role on your operation. And you really, truly are, are more than a business partner. And you're an individual that's making those decisions. And I think that that's really important because a lot of people talk about how, do, how male dominated the agricultural industry is, but there are some absolutely fantastic ladies that are out there that are doing really crucial work and you are certainly one of those and certainly a testament to you and, and some of the efforts that you've been able to do. And, and then the passion that you bring for in the industry is, is just, it's infectious in a lot of different cases because you are what's right. You're right about what, about the industry and the passion that it takes to be able to be successful. And I, I think some, I've thought back often about how small the industry is and then how well connected the industry is. And it has never been more evident to me in recent times than here. We here, I was in Michigan an hour and a half from my house at a conference two months ago. And I'm literally walking through a crowd to go look at a trade show. And I look over and here sits Jam and Kenny McFarland from West Weber, Utah in my home state, an hour and a half from my house at a, uh, at a nationwide fruit and vegetable show. And it was, it was a lot of fun to be able to sit down and meet with you guys or talk to you guys just for a few minutes. And then for Lindsay to come down and be able to go to dinner. But that just goes to show the connect the connectivity within the industry. And then the, the innovation and the creativity that you, that you and Kenny are trying to bring to your operation. And certainly our hats off to you. Uh, we would like all of our listeners to be able to go support and certainly patronize the McFarland family farms, find them on Instagram, find them on their website, visit one of their 14 farm markets in the greater Salt Lake City uh, area. Certainly, I would love to be there in uh, in Salt Lake in the summer and come to see your guys' your operation. And you maybe guys are welcome to, anytime. Yeah, especially maybe to be able do to do a traveling podcast. We could travel the country. That's a cool idea. Absolutely. 
do it from the field. We could be in the in the or maybe opening day of harvest, kind of that come first day, day when sweet corn. come to first day of sweet corn. It's a great day. Sure. That would be so, fun. With that, everyone, I want to sincerely thank Jam for her time on with the kitchen table podcast. And as always, Kyle, it's been a pleasure. And until next time, thank you. Thank you all. Good night.